Well, good morning, Terranova. Uh, to you here, it's good to, to see people. It's the place in the week I can actually be with more than one person, it seems, so that's always good. And to those who are viewing at home, uh, we haven't forgotten you guys. You're still very much part of our hearts, and we hope we're able to gather back with everybody together soon. So this morning, you can find your way in your Bibles to Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. We're going to talk about following Jesus. And really, that's the core of discipleship, is Jesus is revealing something, and we just respond by following or not. So as we're talking about this, I want you to set your mind on following and what it looks like, what you're following, what, what direction you're setting, why you're setting that. I just want you to have that mindset as you go in. Um, for me, I want to tell a story about when I was eight or nine, hard to remember what, when I learned some lessons about following. Uh, we had a, a guy staying at our house for the summer. He was a, a son of a family friend, and I'm eight or nine, and he's like 20, so I thought, this guy's cool. He doesn't have to listen to everything my dad says, immediately cool points. He was a college lacrosse player and a mountain climber. I'm like, this guy's so cool, he has a beard. So at one point he said, I'm going to go in the caves across the street and, and kind of explore them and go splunky. He knew the area some. And I'm like, Dad, can I go? And he's like, Ugh, you, that's not the safest place. I mean, they hadn't even told us these caves existed. And we were kids. If anyone should know that caves are across the street, it's kids. So we determined that I could go if I followed after him. And he said, don't worry, Doc, to my dad, because that's what everyone called my dad. Uh, I'll make sure he just takes step by step wherever I go. I'll make sure he's safe. I do this all the time. This is not a tough climb. We're, we'll be fine. So I'm thrilled. And then there's only one piece I remember now as a grown-up. There was a ledge about two feet wide, which is plenty wide to be able to go across, but at eight or nine, it was terrifying. I don't know if it was 40, 50 feet. It was death feet up, right? I remember looking down, it's death feet up if you fall. And he goes across, and I'm about a third of the way across, and panic just overtook me. Um, my memory of it isn't really clear then, because when you're panicked, you don't remember things well. I just remember saying, no, 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 no. And he's like, you could, you could take a step backwards and be off it that way. No, 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 no. That's all I'm doing, right? Until eventually he came back over and probably just picked me up and brought me, because I have no recollection of how I got back to the other side, but done. I, I learned following looks really good on paper. And people can be convinced, oh, it's safe and will work perfectly. But you still actually have to follow Sometimes even through your, your own fears, or you're going to do something else and not follow. And it gave me a lot of sympathy for Peter in Matthew 22, uh, Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. Uh, give you another second to find your way there. Where we're going to go today is we're going to talk about Jesus and the divine setup of a discipleship moment for the disciples. Then we're going to talk about revelation and response, because at the end of the day, I think that's what discipleship kind of distills down to. God reveals something, and we respond. Either we receive it or reject it. And then we'll talk about the journey, particularly Peter's journey in a broader sense, but then focus in on our discipleship journey. Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. It's I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. 
So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us. Give us aid to see you, because we can't follow, Lord, if we're not fixed on you. Give us strength to focus, Lord. Give us endurance for those who are tired. Lord, give us a new call for those who have lost their way and can't figure out how we, how we respond to following you again. Lord, would you just write over the compasses of our lives, whatever we've directed ourselves towards, whether it's our success, our finances, politics, whatever it is, Lord. And would you put Jesus squarely back on that for yours, Lord, that you would help us be better disciples to the glory of Jesus. We ask these things in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So it really does feel like a bit of a divine setup by Jesus that he's telling them ahead of time, go out on the water. I'll catch up to you later. Go on ahead of me. It says he made them or he compelled them. So they're being good disciples at this point. They're doing what disciples are supposed to do, what on paper looks so good. Jesus tells you something and you say, yes, Lord, and you do it. Go out ahead of me. What do they do? They get in the boat and go away. It seems, though, that Jesus is aware the entire time where he's going this, uh, this day. So the question immediately for a disciple is, who's running your show? Who's, who's making you jump? Who's dictating your responses and directions? Because if you just fall in love with the newspaper, you're going to be a disciple of the contemporary world only. You'll be a disciple of a moment, moment by moment. And if you're just for the cause du jour, you'll be a disciple of something that's man-made and created. They've determined they're following after Jesus. He made them go out, and they do it. Even into the midst of stormy weather, he's aware. It does away with the lie we can tell ourselves when difficulty comes upon us, when darkness of circumstances, if not of the actual environment, falls upon us, when there are threats to us, when there's instability around us. We can tell ourselves this lie. Jesus doesn't really know. This is bad, and he's going to have to figure out where I am, locate me, and get me out of this, because I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be suffering. does away with that, because he has sent them right where they are, knowing the danger that they'll be going into. They followed Jesus and ended up in angst and suffering. Do you understand that? That's an important thing for us to get as a disciple that you can follow faithfully, be doing the right thing, and have responses that don't feel enjoyable or good, that actually cause you pain or suffering. You can follow Jesus and be in a difficult spot. That's important for us to just own. So it's difficult times for a lot of us. I know this Saturday for many people was filled with upsetting news, and they weren't sure what are we going to do, how are we going to move on, but the good news is the Badgers are going to play next weekend. It was only this weekend that the game was postponed. So we're, we're good. It's all going to be okay, people. Jesus is busy with other things in that moment. He's given them a command. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And now he's dismissing the, those ten to 15,000 people who had gathered. He, he cares for all of his people. He cares not just for those 12 who get named. He cares for all of us, the, the sort of the extras in the kingdom of God. Right? Your name may not appear in the Bible, but those 12,000 knew 
Jesus provided for us miraculously. Jesus is there until we're ready to be dismissed. And then Jesus goes away to pray. And we only know this because he tells us. There's no witnesses anymore. But Jesus wants us to know, if you're following me, this is what my private moments look like. There are several key pieces in the Gospels that are like that, where only Jesus knew and he reveals. The temptation in the wilderness, where he's driven by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. There's nobody there but Satan and Jesus, but Jesus determines it's really important that you know this piece of my private life, where I relied on the word of God when the prince of darkness himself was tempting me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's asking God, if there's another plan that I can follow faithfully, can you give me that plan? But nevertheless, you will be done. The disciples are asleep. But Jesus wants us to know what his vital spiritual life looked like. I find these passages very convincing because often it's about prayer and his consistency and passion for prayer. And I've learned if I want to feel convicted, I just start looking at the prayer life of some of the most godly people or Jesus. I need to do that more. Uh, the weather's been great, and Diane and I made a bonfire. And by Diane and I making a bonfire, I, mean, I made a bonfire. And then we, we sat around it and prayed last night. And it was just fantastic. Uh, on other given nights, we could have easily just spent that watching a show or talking about food or, or you know, just calling a friend. It, it was meaningful and important that we did that. In those places of silence in the Gospels, Jesus fills many times to tell us, you need to have this behind-the-scenes spiritual life that's just on you. And then he reveals something to the disciples. He walks on the water. It's a miracle. Remember, miracles are those times where God suspends the laws of physics. He goes against and counter to what physically, scientifically should happen every time. It's not just something good and unlikely happening. You go to Crossgates Mall, it's Christmas time, you get a parking spot. That's providence. That's not, it's not a miracle. It's good, and you're, you may be praising God and singing songs, but it's just providence that he provided that way. You, you find someone who likes you enough to marry you, providence. For some, close to miracle, but just providence still. But walking on the water, that's something different. He's displaying something about himself, that he's in control in these circumstances that are really causing the disciples' faith almost literally to sink at this point. When Mark tells the story, remember Mark's gospel is probably Peter telling the disciple Mark what happened. It says that they were just trying to row constantly and they weren't getting anywhere. They're, just, they're stuck in this terrible situation. And here comes Jesus. He's revealing to them again in the midst of suffering and struggle who God is so they can know that. Because it's so easy for us who are mortal, finite, time-bound, and self-obsessed to in our struggle see nothing but our own limited power of the circumstances that we're going through. But this is different. There are those who are just, to me, pretty insane about who Jesus is on the wrong side of things. I, I read some commentaries by guys who would be uh, considered liberal theologians, right? They, they spend a lot of their time wanting to get out of the Bible the nice things that we're supposed to do as Christians and equally denying the miraculous and divine things about Jesus. I literally read guys who were saying, well, it probably means he was swimming. And, and my head just starts throbbing. I'm like, Qu question, liberal theology guy. Then why are the disciples amazed that they see a ghost? Because I've seen guys swimming. And I don't go, oh my gosh, it's a ghost. I go, it's a, it's a guy swimming. Another guy said, oh, he's walking on the shoreline. Equally unimpressive, maybe even less so. At least swimming in a storm was something. But this is not that, and they know it's not that. They may even be terrified that they're seeing an apparition of Jesus because this is the end. They may be thinking, well, that's it. 
we're going like, to keep walking towards the light and go through this tunnel at this point. They're terrified. And I give them a little bit of a break. Because we don't always expect the supernatural, even though we believe in a supernatural God. Have you ever been on a plane with terrible turbulence you start to pray? For me, that's like almost every flight. I literally have had stewardess come over and say, are you okay, sir? <laughs> you know, this is, it's not a highlight reel for Ed on planes. But when I'm praying, I think if I saw Jesus on the wing of the plane, I wouldn't go, ah, Jesus. I would probably say, oh, no, I've lost my mind, too. Now I'm seeing Jesus on the wing of the airplane. So I give them a pass. They didn't expect this, even though they know who they're following. So let's move to revelation and response. That process of discipleship always starts with divine revelation. It has to. God started it all. If we try to read the Bible like any other book and you start at the left, in the beginning, God. He reveals everything about himself, including the creation of people. Revelation always starts with God. If we're responding to him, we, we, we end up being like Abraham, who's following a divine call. Or Saul, when he sees the light, it's only because of God that he changes the entire course of his life. It's the prophets, whenever they speak, saying, thus saith the Lord. They're revealing what, what God said for us to respond to. It's, it's your pilgrimage. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're a disciple of his, you're a member of the church, a people of God, there was a point in your life where God revealed something to you. I don't know if it happened through preaching, through scripture, through prayer life, through the spirit of God, but you saw Jesus as he is and yourself as you are, a sinner in need of a savior, and everything changed for you. That, that's just how revelation works. And now Jesus has revealed the miraculous power that he has in the middle of the storm, raging so hard that they can't even row against it, these guys who are fishermen. And their response? Fear. It says they say it's a ghost and cry out in fear. I have a hunch it's, ah, you know, I mean, it's probably not the most highlight real moment for the disciples that they would want to, excuse me, look back on when they see Jesus and just start to shriek. And remember, these are the first round draft picks of disciples. These are the ones that Jesus said, first 12 picks, I'm taking these guys. Walked with them and taught them now for a period of time, and they respond like this. So let's not think like, man, we don't have permission to at times freak out over the situations that we're in. If it happened to them, I promise it's going to happen to you. This discipleship journey of revelation and response that continually goes on is about process, not perfection. You have to continue to follow even in the moments where you fail. Jesus is incredibly gracious in this. He continues to reveal himself. It's not just once and you failed, so I'm done with you. He says, guys, it's me. And then he tells them one thing he prescribes and one thing he prohibits. Do not be afraid. He prohibits that. Take heart. Be of courage, it says in Mark. When Jesus shows up and Jesus' followers see him and know him as he is and understand his presence and his power, we're not allowed to have that response to be guided by fear. You may feel it at times emotionally. It may be the, the light on your dashboard, but it's not the steering wheel or the engine. It's not the power or direction. You have to be able to take courage with that and say, Jesus is in charge. Sure, the storms are big, but Jesus is in charge. And then in verse 28, Peter speaks. He does this a lot, right? Peter's, if you go through the Gospels, he's the disciple who's always saying something. He, he's a leader. People often mock him for saying the wrong things. He's just a young leader who's trying to follow Jesus, a, a difficult path at times. But he's the one who steps up and says, Lord, if it's you, command me and I'll come to you. 
He's asking for discipleship. Let me know, Lord, that I should follow you. And Jesus' answer, come. And he walks on the water. What amazing things God has in store for us who believe in him. That we will pass, that our bodies will go lifeless and our friends will mourn us, but we will rise and we will not be dead in this world. That's what Jesus says he has for us. That he will change us into his likeness. That over the course of time in this process of following Jesus, we won't be what we were. We will be more and more like him. He has all this for us and he says to Peter, come. And Peter walks on the surface of the water for a minute. And then he sees the wind, which that's a hard thing. I think he sees the effects of the wind, but I'm not going to quibble over language at that point. And, and then he sinks immediately like the rock Jesus will say he is in two more chapters. Like he, just, he just is going down. Did you ever do that? God's told you to do something, called you in a direction, and you start off, man, you are just gung-ho, ready to follow Jesus through anything, and then difficulty comes, and the story changes. Well, we can't do this now. This is terrible, and, and things are just going to fall apart, and things are so dark, and I don't know what we're going to do. We take our eyes off of Jesus. And the more we look at circumstances, the smaller Jesus gets. The bigger those things get. And we just try in our own strength desperately to twist the Rubik's cubes to get all the colors to show up on the right side or peel the stickers to put them on the right side instead of looking to Jesus. Here's where Peter gets some points in discipleship too. Not just being the guy who steps out and asks. But when he starts to sink, he calls out, Lord, save me. He's realized I've made these circumstances so big, I cannot fix them, and I don't know what to do, but I can rely on Jesus. See, this is, again, a great grace in our discipleship, right? He, he's, he's rejected the response that because Jesus called me, when God gives his plans, he always gives his power. And Peter starts to respond in that power, but then the circumstances that he sees draws him back under, and now he realizes what I need to do is what I did in the first place. Rely on Jesus. If that's you at this point, if your discipleship journey is, man, my circumstances are huge. I don't feel like God is looking at me right now. I feel like things are too difficult for me. Here's the promise. They are. But if God has called you somewhere, if he gives his plan to follow after him as a person, he will give the power and provisions. You simply cannot do it on your own because it would mean you had no humility and reliance. Jesus pulls him out and says, you, you should have had faith. You shouldn't have been a doubter. And the people in the boat, and the wind stops, right? The whole thing changes now. And it says they begin to do two things. The first is they start to tell the truth about who Jesus is. You're the son of God. And that's changed everything from guys screaming about ghosts and just being in terror to saying, there is a plan that God had, that the prophets foretold that the Messiah would come. This is the son of God. Sometimes telling ourselves or having someone near us who just tells us the truth, the simple truths, not even deep nuances that somehow make sense of difficult things. I mean simple truths. God still reigns, Pastor Rob said today. Boy, that's a simple truth that some of us need to hear when we don't like some of our circumstances. God, God isn't missing it. You're not alone. God is with you. God was involved enough with your life that he came to this world before you even knew who he was. While you were enemies with him, he died for your sins. And God has said he's coming back. Those simple things sometimes are what changes everything. And then they do one other thing. They have to fix the world where they've made the circumstances big and Jesus small into making Jesus big again. Telling the truth is part of that. And it says, then they worshiped him. They start assigning the worth of Jesus and stop talking about the circumstances so much. 
If you're in those difficult spots, man, may I encourage you, be a worshiper. Tell yourself, Jesus is everything. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Tell yourself, Jesus is great and powerful and he's coming back. You'll find that he gets larger and larger and your circumstances cannot compete with the massive gravity of the glory of Jesus. It's a fascinating scene, but what I find equally fascinating is the journey that Peter has. When you look at his whole life, it's a story of one step forward, two step backs, or two step forward, one step back. It's not a neat line of discipleship. It's not, God has a plan, I've been called to it, so I just follow that in a straight line. There's only one who did that, Jesus. He's the only one who followed the path without wavering. That's, that's not our call. Our call is to be following after Jesus, even in faulted ways. So I want us to take a couple minutes to look at the life of Peter and his journey and consider some lessons for our own journey. It's easy to think of Peter as the guy after a whole lot of process, 30 years after this, when he, when he writes two books of the Bible. And, and he is pastoral and patient and sagacious as he talks to the people of God. It's easy to think of Peter as the, the, the guy who, who did such great work that the West will say he's, he's the first pope and the East will say he's the first patriarch of, of Antioch where artists will paint him and, and every joke will have him at the pearly gates. It's easy to think of Peter who's just polished and done. But remember his calling? Remember when Jesus first showed up in his life? Jesus had been teaching. It says that they were fishing all night. This is in Luke chapter 5. And Jesus says, Peter, I need your boat so I can pull out on the lake a little bit and people can hear me better and see me and I can speak. Peter gives it to him. And Jesus is done teaching. And I'm going to pick up from Luke 5. He says this. He said to Simon Peter, put out in the deep, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And I want to hit pause right there because I wish so many times there was tone in the Bible. I would love to hear what the inflection is in Peter's voice. The, the skilled fisherman, who fished all night and got nothing, is now putting away his nets, Matthew 5 tells us. He's already done the work of starting to clean up, which is the worst work after you've had an unfruitful day, right? And then the rabbi says, the Bible guy says, go fishing again in the daytime. At the wrong time, on a day where you didn't catch anything. And he goes, we have fished all night, rabbi. But since you said it, that's what we're going to do. I don't think it's a happy compliance I think it's a compliance of word with a rebellion in the heart. And he's just going out there thinking, this isn't going to work. Why? Because it's Peter's world. Consider the places where you're competent in. Whatever it is. It might be your job. It might be a social skill. It may be with finance. The thing where your competency, you're confident on. That is a dangerous place of discipleship. Because God may show up and say, I'm actually going to work counter to your confidence. I'm going to do something that everything in you says, that adds up wrong. And we have to follow through and do it. He does, and the nets are bursting with fish, right? They're so much so he has to call other people in to help him load. He realizes pretty quickly that this is not just an exceptionally odd outlying moment. This is miraculous. They signal to their partners. They get him in. The boats are sinking. And it says this, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It wasn't, man, that guy got lucky. There were a lot of fish there. He's realized either Jesus called these fish all to his net immediately or generated these fish, and that a guy who can see through water can see through me. And when he sees Jesus revealed, his response is, this guy should have nothing to do with me. Do you ever feel like that? Jesus, you shouldn't pick me on your team. You should be out there looking for better people. 
when you have all sinners, there, there isn't better. In a very binary way, Jesus has himself and everybody else. Jesus then gives him another revelation. He's so gracious to continue to reveal himself. He says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Follow me. And it says they left everything and followed him. All the discussion, the historic hall, the miraculous, the, the place where Peter says, I'm going to reject this. I can't go with this guy. And finally acknowledging, I'll follow after him. That's where he came from. It doesn't look much like a guy who's going to be a patriarch of the church at that point. But God says, don't despise the small things. That's where beginnings happen. Don't hate your life before Jesus. Let it be a place that gives glory to God, that out of your weaknesses, he's turned you into something different in following him. Jesus revealed. We want to hide? And he says, nope, you're going to follow. Matthew chapter 16, I'll go light on this because we're going to be preaching it in just a couple of weeks. Uh, but Jesus now is standing on a mount Sorry, let me back up. Before the Mount of Transfiguration, he's in Caesarea Philippi, and he asks the disciples this question, Matthew 16, 13. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. This is a great question. People are fascinated by Jesus. Even if they only know the stories, they realize this man was more significant than probably anyone else if he was just a man who walked on the earth. And if you invite people in, they're willing to talk about Jesus. If we just want to tell them, here's who I believe, they, they might get defensive. But I've asked people, and people have said amazing things. People have said, Jesus um, was a guy who worked all these power plays, and he became the head of the Habsburg families, and his children and grandchildren ended up ruling Europe. I'm like That's fascinating how much weird faith you have. Um, I had a friend who told me he believed Jesus was an alien, that he was beamed down, and that's how he did all the works that he did, and his resurrection was just the beaming up. I'm like, wow, you watch Star Trek too, cool. Uh, but there are a lot of things people are willing to talk about when you say, what do you think about Jesus? Not a bad way to begin those conversations. But Jesus turns it to a razor-sharp pinpoint when he says in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you think speaks? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's using the language of discipleship. My Father revealed this to you, and you responded by acknowledging the truth of that. You didn't come up with this yourself. This is discipleship. It's revelation and response, and he didn't reject it like so many times before. So why in other times does he and do we just reject the revelation of God? Let me suggest there are three things that are going to hinder you most in being a disciple that follows after revelation. The first is ignorance. You just don't know enough. You don't know enough about who Jesus is yet, what the Bible says maybe, how to square these things together. And so you say, eh, no, I don't think so. Sometimes it's injury. You've had trauma in your past. You're protecting those wounds that aren't scars yet. And so you say, no, no this, this feels incredibly unsafe. The last time I trusted like this, I got hurt, won't do this. We'll say can't, but really we're saying, I won't do this. And the last one also begins with an I, because I got ordained a Baptist, and you have to sign an agreement that you'll always alliterate, um, is idolatry. We actually love something more than we love Jesus. Jesus, I hear that you're revealing this, and for me to follow this way, but frankly, I like something else in my life more, and I don't want to compromise that so I can't slash won't follow. But in that one, he's dead on. Then things continue. 
Verse 20, he strictly charged the disciples, tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed. On the third day, rose again. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. How quickly we can turn and have it go wrong. When we're following Jesus, you're blessed. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. The moment we determine to reject revelation, the revelation that he would be a sacrifice, Jesus says, no, you're, you're like Satan now. You're like an adversary because you're following a counter direction at this point. Following, and then shortly after that is the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is seen with Moses, the father of the law, Elijah, the head of the prophets. And, and it says in Luke, uh, I think it's chapter 9, where Peter speaks, it says, Peter, not knowing what to say, said, there's a piece of discipleship where sometimes we just have to let God be God. Stop trying to figure it out. Maybe it's actually not important that we figure it out sometimes. Maybe it's not even necessary that we add a thing at moments. And we just let God actually be the center of the story without trying to step on Jesus' lines. It's the light of silence in this passage that would have been glorious for Peter that he misses in that moment. Last two passages. Jesus will foretell Peter's denial and then restore him. We know that he says, you know, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter's response is, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He thinks too highly of himself. It's a discipleship problem. If we're not humble, if we don't realize we need reliance in everything we're doing, that God's just continually revealing and giving us grace, we're going to start to have a false confidence in ourselves, a faith in me. Can I just tell you, if someone pitches to you the faith in Ed Marcel, deny it, walk away. It's going to be really disappointing. I've been here for 54 years in this body. It's, it's a mixed show at best, right? You just don't want to do that. You want to follow after Jesus. There's humility that says, I can be wrong. My kids and wife, every now and again, would say to me, Dad, I think you're wrong, after I'd say something. And I didn't get defensive. I didn't say, no, I'm not. I, I would say, you know what? That has happened 27 times in my life. It conceivably could happen here, but we're waiting on 28, and there would be immediate eye rolls, but they knew I was trying in my way to jokingly say, I'm humble enough to say, yeah, I could be wrong. Pride comes before the fall. Why? Because it's without humility and it's without discipleship. Disciples have to have that humility. Then the restoration of Peter, John chapter 21. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? Now remember, he's denied him three times. You see what Jesus is doing is restoration. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. He's telling the truth. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. History tells us Peter was crucified upside down. Um, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. He restores him and says, be a disciple again. Follow after me. But the restoration is what's really important. 
Remember what Peter did. He denied Jesus three times. One might think the restoration would be, Peter, be bold then if you're going to love me. Peter, do you love me? Make sure you say what's true. But he doesn't. He says, if you love me, feed my sheep, care for my sheep. Why? Because he wants Peter to love the object of Jesus' affection. If we love him, we will see the world the way he sees it more and love the object of his affection. Mark this. The object of your affection dictates your direction. Peter loved himself. That's why he denied Jesus. He was afraid he would be arrested and beaten. It wasn't that he wasn't bold. It was that he loved his own skin more than anything. And Peter is then told, love my sheep if you love me. That's when he becomes the pastor who writes first and second Peter because of this restoration, the direction of new affections. So for you, where are you at? If you had to say, what's making you jump? What's causing your direction? What's the true north of your compass? Is it Jesus? Honest to God, is it Jesus? Are you seeking revelation and response? Are there places where you know you're fighting, where Jesus has said, I need you to know this about me, about you, about this world, and you're going, "Mm, no, I I want something else. Is Is it your ignorance, your injury, or your idolatry that's doing that? Get to that point. Because he's given us so many tools to help. He's not asked us to follow on his own, otherwise we'll end up like little Ed scared on the rocks. He's given us the Holy Spirit, who says, I will take from what's Jesus and give it to you so that you can glorify, add weight to him. You have that capacity. He's given us the words. There's constant revelation of who he is that we can respond to. He's given us the church so that we can have others on this pilgrimage, that we come from different points. We all are moving towards that same objective end of being with Jesus. And maybe we need to love that more as we love him more and more. But the most important piece is Jesus. He rose. We're still following him. We're not following his teachings. He rose. We're not just following the doctor of the church. He rose and we follow him. Even after all of your worst failures, he'll look at you and say, follow me once he restores you. You don't have to be afraid and follow just after politics or personal passions. You don't have to just stare at your circumstances or listen to the voices of your critics. You're not just trapped by self and the love of sin. We, the people of God, have Jesus to follow. The band's going to come up and we'll have time to reflect and celebrate communion and worship. And I'm going to ask you to do what the disciples did as they made Jesus larger and their circumstances smaller. Sing the words that are true with a wholehearted and full-throated worship of Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious and great Father in heaven, We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the company of your spirit. We thank you for the company of this church, God. Help us to love this church more and more the way you called Peter to be restored that way. But our Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can turn to you now, that we can ask you, Lord, have grace and mercy upon us and help us to see you so that we can follow. And my prayer is for each in this room. Would you please show each in the way that only you can the next step in their journey, whether it's a correction for those who are so lost and confused they don't know how to find you again, whether it's encouragement for those who are tired or direction for those who just haven't known. Father, we turn our eyes to Jesus, in whose name we now pray. Amen.